Well, as you can see from the screen, today we are going to continue with paedo-baptism and the New Covenant. We started that just very briefly last time, so we're going to pick up where we left off last time and uh, deal with today the, the New Covenant. The New Covenant is a, is a critical uh, aspect with regard to understanding um, even paedo-baptism because it is the covenant under which we live and exist. Now, paedo-baptism, that is the baptism of infants, claims to be biblical and is practiced the world over by Roman Catholics, by Anglicans, by Episcopalians, and by even some mainline uh, Protestant churches, such as the Presbyterian churches. And I believe that as a result of that, <clears throat> we live in a nation, and actually we live in a world in which there are millions and millions of baptized non-Christians. There are millions of baptized people who are not repentant, who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and are not committed to him, in spite of the fact that Jesus said to go out and preach the gospel and to do so um, making disciples and then baptizing them. And I believe that infant baptism is perhaps the preeminent reason why we have millions of baptized unbelievers in the world. Now, when discussing infant baptism, <clears throat> the central issue is really not so much who can be baptized, but rather who is in the covenant. Pedobaptists will say that you are in the covenant by virtue of your birth to at least one believing parent. And by being born to at least one believing parent, you're in the covenant, and because you're in the covenant, you therefore get the covenant sign, which is baptism. <clears throat> so Pedobaptists view the new covenant as different from the Credobaptist view, our view, Baptist view of the new covenant, and at the heart of the difference is whether the new covenant members are regenerate or not. The Pedobaptists cannot allow that all new covenant members are regenerate because that would mean that the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism, would be applied only to those who are regenerate. And we determine that by those who have repented and who have believed. <clears throat> And I said last week that the nature of the new covenant determines its members just like the nature of the atonement determines those for whom it was given. Now, does the new covenant include believers and their infant children? Meaning both the regenerate and the unregenerate? Or does it include only believers, meaning only the regenerate? And I'm fully aware of the fact that you cannot see into a person's heart and know if they're regenerate, but we determine that, and the Lord has given us the means by which to determine that, not infallibly, but, but uh, validly. Um, we determine that by those who have repented and those who have believed. So the Pedobaptist argues something like this. And you remember I've said that the 
they view the, that there's a covenant of grace and that the Old Testament, there's an Old Testament sign and a New Testament sign to the covenant of grace. And so they would argue along these lines that circumcision was given to Abraham as the Old Testament sign of the covenant of grace. The New Testament sign of the covenant of grace is baptism, and baptism replaces circumcision as that sign. They would say also that circumcision was applied to infants in the Old Covenant, and therefore uh, baptism, which is the sign that replaces circumcision, is to be applied to infants in the New Covenant because God has not abrogated the application of the sign to infants, even though he has changed the sign. Now, frankly, I would think that the fact that he's changed the sign could be a good indication that he might change those to whom it is applied, but uh, we'll, we'll just go along with whatever they, uh, we'll, we'll just accept what they're saying at this point, or just mention what they're saying at this point, the Pedro-Baptists. Thirdly, <clears throat> they, uh, they say that circumcision uh, was, circumcision made infants part of the old covenant community. And likewise, baptism makes infants part of the old covenant community. And therefore, there were unregenerate in the old covenant community, and therefore we should expect that there are unregenerate in the new covenant community, and that is simply the church. And so they would also say that the old covenant members needed to be taught to know the Lord, and so new covenant community members need to be taught to know the Lord. Now, there is something that is common. There is a, um, a concept that undergirds this framework that Pato Baptist set before us. What is that? Now, I'm, I've already told you that I, don't, I really don't acknowledge that there is a covenant of grace, especially as it is presented by the Pato Baptists. But given that, at this point, because we're looking at it from a Pato Baptist perspective, uh, what concept undergirds this teaching here? Continuity across the covenants. Exactly. What was the, the continuity across the covenants, or another way of putting that is this. The new covenant is like the old covenant. The new covenant is like the old covenant. So, we're going to test that. Does the Bible teach us, in its presenting to us the new covenant, does it teach us that the new covenant is like the old covenant? We're going to spend a good bit of time looking at that concept today. So, last week we started, and we're looking at now the nature of the new covenant. That is what's going to answer this question for us. What is the nature of the new covenant? Last time we began by saying that it has a mediator, and its mediator is Jesus. And we saw that from Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. And we looked at chapter 12, verse 24. But you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus, our Savior, who is the God-man, who can mediate between sinners and a holy God because he is the God-man, he is the mediator of the new covenant. 
And we saw that his mediation is founded on his, his blood. In Matthew 26, 28, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, poured out for my chosen, poured out for the elect. Why? What's going to be, what is, what's it going to accomplish for the forgiveness of sins? Based on the blood of Jesus, Luke 22. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The blood of Jesus is the blood of the new covenant. And so now, that's, we saw that, that last week. Now we're going to look at the necessity. Now necessity may, uh, and this is on your handout if you have it. I hope you have your, have your handouts with you. If you haven't gotten the handout, there's a handout on the back chair there. And you can grab each page. There's two pages of it. But anyway, the necessity probably doesn't fit exactly under the nature of the new covenant, but we're, we're going to leave it there for right now. Hebrews 7.18, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, the former commandment being the law of Moses, um, the Mosaic covenant. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Now notice how the writer of the Hebrews characterizes the Mosaic covenant. It is weak even useless. Now, it did, it did have a purpose, and it did accomplish the purpose for which God sent it. Nevertheless, the writer to the Hebrews, in, comparison, in comparing that to the New Covenant, can call it weak and useless. And so, in 8.7 we read, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So the first covenant has, was, fault, was not faultless. Now, it doesn't mean that there was something that God made a mistake in establishing the Mosaic Covenant. It's not what, it's, it's not what he's trying to communicate. But he's saying that it could not accomplish, ultimately, what needed to be accomplished, and that is the redemption of his people. Now, that's the necessity of the new covenant. What about the betterness of the new covenant? Why do we even need a covenant? We needed a second, according to Hebrews. We needed a second. Why? We needed something better. Well, what's the betterness of the new covenant? Hebrews 7. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He guarantees this better covenant. There was a guarantee involved in this covenant that was not involved in the Mosaic Covenant, could not be involved in the Mosaic Covenant, and we will see why. 8.6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, much more, is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Oh, but the old covenant and the new covenants are just alike, right? The new covenant is better, and he who is a mediator is a better mediator. That's why the covenant is better. And it's enacted on better promises. So we have to understand the nature of the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Now what about its effectiveness? Is it effective as we compare that to, say, the old? Is it effective? Well, in the new covenant... It is effective because Jesus atones for the sins of its members. 
The old covenant could not do that. <coughs> Hebrews 9, 11-15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Was eternal redemption obtained through the blood of bulls and goats under the old covenant? No. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, all, all that the blood of bulls and goats could do is something external, But what about the blood of Christ? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, can reach into your heart, can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so the blood of Christ, the foundation of the new covenant, is a a blood that can cleanse us on the inside. And therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant. We needed a new covenant that could reach into the hearts of people. So it's effective. Jesus atones for the sins of his members. Unlike the blood of bulls and goats that could not atone, his blood atoned. It actually did what it was intended to do. So it's effective because he atones for the sins of his members, but it's effective also because Jesus intercedes for its members, those for whom he atones. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Not only did he atone for us, but he intercedes for us. He is the great high priest who comes before God as the one who is presenting the offering, but he's also the offering. And as a priest, he also intercedes for us. And so he intercedes for the members of the new covenant. And he also regenerates the members of the new covenant via the Holy Spirit. He in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we, we read these passages last week and we don't have time to read them again today. They should be in your handout if you need them. But what does he say, say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? And you show that you are a letter from Christ. Now, remember I told you before that there, there were those who were criticizing the apostle Paul. They considered themselves to be super apostles. And they came to the Corinthians with letters of recommendation. Uh, we recommend us. Paul didn't have any letters of recommendation. And Paul says, wait a minute. You Corinthians are our letter of recommendation. We are your father in the faith. We brought you to faith in Christ. We don't need letters of recommendation. We're, we, I'm your spiritual father. You're our letter of recommendation. And you're a letter of recommendation from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink. I like these. So-called apostles have these letters written with ink. We don't need a letter written with ink. But you are a letter. You are written with the Spirit, by the Spirit of the living God. You're a letter from Christ, and Christ uses the Spirit of the living God to write. And where does he write? On, on parchment? No, he writes on the tablets of the human heart. Not on tablets of stone like the old Mosaic Covenant. He writes on the tablets of the human heart. And so... The Spirit of God used by Christ to write on your heart. What is that? What is that in theological terminology? That's regeneration. 
That has given you a new heart. That is Ezekiel 36 and 37, taking out the old heart of flesh and giving you a heart, of, a heart uh, taking out the whole heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. That's what that's about. Jesus uses the Spirit via the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working with Jesus. He regenerates the members for whom he atoned and for whom he intercedes. His new covenant is effective. It does what it was intended to do. Now just think about that. We have a mediator who atones for our sins, who intercedes for us, who regenerates us. That's what these texts are teaching. What about his finality and eternal permanency? And if you have your handout, I'm combining the last two uh, points here in one on my screen. <coughs> Hebrews 7, 23 and 25. This is, this is the new covenant is final, it's eternal, it's permanent. We don't need anything else. We don't need a third covenant. We got a first covenant, the first covenant done away, obsolete, vanishing away, in order that a second might be established. We don't, we're not going to need a third because it, this is the final covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, and he always lives. He doesn't die like those Old Testament priests. Old Testament high priest lived and died. Another one came along, lived and died. Another lived and died, and they lived and they died, and they lived and they died. We don't have to have a priest who lives and dies. He died, and now he lives, and he lives forever to make intercession for those for whom he died. 9.12, he entered once for all, once for all time. He doesn't need to do it again. Once for all time into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, it's secured, it's done deal, securing eternal redemption. And that's why he says later, in Hebrews in, ver in chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought you again, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. This covenant is eternal. It doesn't need to be replaced. There, there does not need to be another because it does what it was intended to do. And so in light of all of that, you think of this is the nature of the new covenant a mediator who is not just a human being, but he is the God-man who, sh who shed his own blood, who atones for our sins, who intercedes for us, who regenerates the members, who established a, a covenant that is final, eternal, and permanent. And you know what? The sign of the covenant needs to be applied to the members of the covenant. We, we cannot make the sign applied bro more broadly than to 
the members of the new covenant, and the members of the new covenant are those for whom Jesus atoned, those for whom he intercedes, and those he has um, regenerated. Now, <clears throat> if that doesn't nail it down for you, look at your handout. And let's take a look at some of the contrasts that I pulled out of the 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and Hebrews uh, 7 to, to 10. Some of the contrasts that are put there. Is the old covenant really just like the new covenant? Or is the new covenant vastly better? I'm not going to look at all of those. But let me just highlight a few of them. Number four, we saw that the old covenant is weak and useless, but the new covenant is called more excellent. Number six, the old covenant is written on tablets of stone. The new covenant is written on the human heart. Number eight, the old covenant had people who had hardened hearts. The new covenant, he puts his laws into their, mi into their minds. He had hardened minds. He puts their laws into their minds. The old covenant had those who had an unlifted veil over their hardened hearts. The new covenant, the veil is removed in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 3. The old covenant, only a remnant knew God. Under the new covenant, all know God from the least to the greatest. Under the old covenant, it was necessary to teach one's neighbor to know the Lord. Under the new covenant, it is not necessary to teach one's neighbor to know the Lord. Number 16, the old covenant had the blood of bulls and goats. The new covenant has the blood of Christ. The old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. The new covenant... The blood of Christ does take away sin. Doesn't just make it possible, but he does it. Under the old covenant, the people broke the covenant. Under the new covenant, they will keep the covenant. Under the old covenant, they were condemned. All those who were under the old covenant were condemned by the Mosaic law. Under the new covenant, they're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is a vast contrast, difference between the old and the new covenants. And I believe we've demonstrated from these texts, and we could go to many more and spend a lot more time, but I believe this is sufficient to demonstrate conclusively that the new covenant is better than the old covenant and that its members are redeemed and regenerate members. And because baptism is the sign of the new covenant, it should not be applied more broadly than to the members of the new covenant itself. Thus it is to be applied to professing believers because that is the means that the Lord has given us to determine those who are, in fact, regenerate. He didn't give it to us as an infallible procedure, but it is the procedure that he has given to us, and it does mean that we are to attempt to baptize only those who are truly members of the new covenant, because, and we determine that by those who have repented and who have believed. And so what I believe it is not appropriate for us to baptize infants who have made no profession of faith, who have made no indication of repenting and made no indication that they can't, made no indication of having believed and have no idea what was going on when they sprinkled a little bit of so-called baptismal water on their heads. No idea what was going on. Well, you say, well, I'm, I'm sure that paedo-baptists have about that. What do they say? Well, let's um, listen to what one of Pedro Baptist who debates, he debates Baptists, 
and um, Dr. Greg Strawbridge, and this is what he says. I want to emphasize once again, once again, this problem, and notice he's going to call it a problem. I want to emphasize once again this problem of thinking the new covenant is different in its administrative function than the Old Testament by pointing out that there is simply no reason to believe that, given the New Testament's teaching that apostasy from the invisible covenant is there. We'll come back to this idea of apostasy. But notice what he says. There's no, no reason for us to think that the new covenant is different in, in its administration than the old covenant. Didn't we just go through a whole lot of reasons? And then he says, this is a repeat. I'm just reminding you that there are passages which include both regenerate and unregenerate in the kingdom and the church. The new covenant church has unregenerate. As it talk about unre- and so therefore, we should reconsider this idea that the new covenant in some way teaches against infant baptism. Actually, it is a paedobaptist who believes and has warrant that children are included in the new covenant, the church, and the kingdom. So by virtue of being born to Christian parents, an infant is to be part of the new covenant community, is to be considered part of the new covenant community, is to be considered the part of the church and to be considered a member of the kingdom of God. That's what they say. Now, um, he can say all of that because he believes that both regenerate and unregenerate are included in the new covenant. Does what we've looked at so far regarding the new covenant give you the idea that the new covenant includes unregenerate? But I could agree with Dr. Strawbridge if I took my theological scissors and cut out Hebrews 7 to 10 and 2 Corinthians 3 and Jeremiah 31 and other passages. But the Paedobaptists, in order to maintain their view of infant baptism, have to eliminate all the contrasts that we have looked at and that you have in your handout. They have to eliminate that. They have to say that the new covenant is really not better. What it has done for the, its members is really not better than what was done under the old covenant. They have to say that there are those on whose hearts the Spirit has not written his law. They have to say that there are those whose hearts are still veiled. They have to say that there are those who still need to be taught to know the Lord. And in fact, um, all baptized infants need to be taught to know the Lord, according to R.C. Sproul, even though they are members of the New Covenant community. The betterness of the New Covenant is eliminated, making it no longer perfect, making Jesus no longer guaranteeing the redemption and the regeneration of its members. Well, what is the Paedobaptist explanation? How do they deal with that? Well, they point to some warning passages. They point to warning passages in Hebrews, and they claim that the new covenant then includes those who will apostatize. And they point to, for, for example, Hebrews chapter 3. Let's look at that. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if 
indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so they would point to a passage like this and say, well, see, these are members of the new covenant. They, have, they could have an evil, unbelieving heart. They could fall away from the living God. They could apostatize. So we have unbelievers. We have unregenerate in the new covenant. Or they would point to Hebrews chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so they will point to these passages and say, well, see, here are members of the new covenant who are trampling underfoot the Son of God. Here are members of the new covenant who have profaned the blood of the covenant. They're unregenerate. And so you can't say that there are no unregenerate people in the new covenant. Okay, well, what do I say to that? <laughs> That's my response. Several things. First of all, whatever these texts say, we know from the other scriptures that we've already looked at and many other places in the Bible that these texts do not mean that an elect, redeemed person can lose his salvation. We know from the other passages of Scripture that is not what they will ultimately mean. Secondly, the writer, and this is vitally important, we have to remember the context. The writer was warning Jewish professing believers who were tempted to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices of Judaism. I want you to imagine a person who professed faith in Christ professed to have believed and trusted in the blood of Christ, who was baptized and who joined the new covenant community and who sat down with them and ate the Lord's Supper with them and with other believers and who is now being tempted by certain Judaizers to go back to the old Mosaic covenant, to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices and to take an animal sacrifice to a priest and have that priest offer that animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of his sins. That's the context that we're dealing with here. The writer is warning Jewish professing believers who were tempted to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices of Judaism. Thirdly, there's a difference between being a member of the new covenant and claiming or professing to be a member. Just because somebody says he's a member doesn't necessarily mean that he is. But I believe that all true members of the new covenant are those who are regenerate. And what these readers are that are reading the book of Hebrews, what these readers really were is going to be revealed by how they respond to these warnings. But you know what? Even these warnings are issued to professing believers they're not unbelievers who were baptized as infants that he's warning. 
There were those who were professing in the church. But he gives them this warning. Now, I think that there's really a fairly straightforward and simple answer to this question and to this issue. And I do acknowledge that these passages can raise some questions in our minds. Well, how could he say that about those who are members of the New Covenant? How could he say that? Well, um, the writer is dealing with the real-life situation of there possibly being some false professors in the congregation. And it's very much like what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, where he says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it might be shown that they are not, that they all are not of us. The, the, the writer to the Hebrews is dealing with that same situation where there are those who are in their midst who were professing, at least for a time, but they really weren't of them, or at least they, the, that's the potential. They really weren't of them, and eventually, if depending on how they respond to the warnings, they might end up going out, showing that what? They were really not of us. They were really not members of the new covenant. Same thing that Peter is talking about when he says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. He says, be sure, make sure that you are one of the called. Make sure that you are actually chosen. Don't become lackadaisical. Don't go back to old practices. Practice the things that the, that the Lord requires of you. Make certain that you are called and that you are chosen. It's the same thing that John is talking about when he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, let me ask you. So we got Bob and we got Jack. And Jack, and Bob hates Jack. He hates him. He's in the church. He professes to be a believer, but he hates his believing brother, Jack. What does John say? says, well, if you hate your brother, if you really hate your brother, you're a murderer and you don't have an eternal life abiding in you. Well, how does he call him a brother then? If he really isn't a brother, why does John call him a brother? It's because he's professing to be a brother, not because he really is a brother. And in fact, the way he is behaving toward his a true believer is going to manifest what he really is. And so Bob really isn't part of the new covenant. He's not really a true believer. He is a murderer who has, doesn't have eternal life abiding in him. So that's, that's the same sort of thing that's happening in the book of Hebrews. And so when we go back to this passage, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading to you to fall away from the living God. Take care, make sure, make your calling and election sure. Make sure you really are in the covenant. Make sure that Jesus really has atoned for your sins, that you have really repented and believed. And don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because sin can deceive you. Don't go back to the old Mosaic law. Same thing in chapter 10. Here are those who, are, who at one time 
sat with God's people and partook of the Lord's Supper with them, who at one time were baptized, who at one time professed to be trusting in the blood of Jesus, but now they're going back to the blood of animals? By doing that, they're trampling underfoot the Son of God. They're profaning the blood of the covenant that they celebrated in the Lord's Supper, by which he was sanctified, that could simply mean by which he was set apart into the covenant community, externally, visibly, or it could simply have to do with the way that they're professing to be sanctified, and they've outraged the spirit of grace. The point here again, the writer to the Hebrews is dealing with the situation in the same way that Peter and John were dealing with situations where there's a possibility there's somebody who's professing to believe who really isn't a believer, who pre- pretends to be a brother, but he's not really a brother, who pretends to have been uh, redeemed by the blood of Christ, but now he's going back to the old covenant, going back to the Judaistic old sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and thereby is trampling underfoot the Son of God. It does not mean that Jesus shed his blood for this individual, that he intercedes for that individual, that he tried to regenerate him but never actually did it. That he is the, it does not mean that Jesus is mediating in the heavenly, uh, in the holy of holies for this individual and that mediation is failing because he's trampled underfoot. No, that's not what it means. His blood does not fail. It does what it came to do. The point here that the writer of the Hebrews is saying is that this is what that person was professing to be. And there's a warning. Make sure that you make your calling and election sure and you don't go back to the old Judaism. Okay. So, the important thing to remember here, important distinction. In the Old Covenant, it was expected that parents would teach their circumcised infant members to know the Lord and become circumcised in heart. The unregenerate children were truly in the Old Covenant as Abraham and Abraham's children and others, as they they circumcised individuals, as they bought slaves and brought them into the Israelite community, wasn't based on their faith, wasn't based on their trust in Jehovah, by virtue of being part of that um, nation, they were circumcised. And that's the reason why they could break the covenant. By design, there were unregenerate members in the old covenant. But in the new covenant, all true members know the Lord and are regenerate. But because there are false professors in the church, there are those who can be deceived, the warnings are needed and church discipline is needed. That's why the Lord gave us church discipline. So that we could seek in the new covenant community to seek to maintain a pure, visible church. That's our goal. We may not reach it perfectly, but that's the goal. And by, de- by design, then, there are only regenerate members in the New Covenant community. That's what we're striving after. That's the difference. Well, before I go on, let me just ask, are there any questions? Yes? So... Going back to several slides ago, how would you best nutshell your case of conversation with someone 
uh, the weakness and uselessness of the old covenant. For me, in the presentation, uh, what I clearly see is that the old covenant very much was much more with the administration of man in a material application, a material, you know, teasing out versus the new covenant, covenant uh, administration by Christ on a spiritual level. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and the other thing, it's going back to that, that whole side to side of, of the Pale Baptist view of old, <coughs> old covenant and new covenant that if it truly were a crosswalk, at what point do we no longer apply a Do we now apply a sign not only to male infants, but to male and female infants, if it's a direct crosswalk? Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I do think that, um, at least my understanding of the new covenant, the one who administers the new covenant is God himself. I think the one who administers the new covenant is God himself. And I right, think, exactly. And I think that God is, is um, he's, he's not failing in the administration of it. Right. And I think that it is a new covenant in that it, um, you know, we have the blood of Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats. All of that was typical and foreshadowed the one who is to come. And that was its purpose. And once it is, it is done, it, it's done away. You know, it's, it's old, it's vanishing, it's going away. And so, um, yeah, so we don't. So now we have the new covenant. We need nothing else. And the new covenant does what the old covenant could not do. Um, and I forget the second well, part. The second was just a comment uh, about the, the whole crosswalk. You know, why does this now apply? Well, yeah, yeah. Sign of life to both. Well, there. At what point in scripture did that get delineated? Yeah, I mean, there's inconsistency there. In fact, if you think about it, because to whom was the sign of circumcision applied? It wasn't just to Abraham's children, but it was also to those uh, those people who were bought, you know, as slaves or as servants in, from pagan nations. So, you know, if we're going to really make it a one-for-one, one, well, why don't we do that? And um, so, um, let me see how much time I have here. I guess I'm about out of time. Let, let me just tell you one thing. In this book, Confession of Faith um, by A.A. Hodge, he deals with certain situations. I just want to briefly mention to you. He says, okay, now we have situations that come about in our in churches based on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so we've got a situation where we, we have a, a man who has uh, grown up in the church. He was baptized as an as a infant, and he's part of the member of the church. And uh, he now has grown. He's gotten children of his own, and he wants to have his children baptized. What do we do? And he said, well, some say that we should go ahead and baptize his children. And he says, that's absurd. It's absurd for us to baptize the children of this man because he's an unbeliever. But, and so he has lost some of the privileges of church membership now, one of them being participating in the Lord's Supper, the other of having his children baptized. So this is a discipline of the church for his unbelief. So get the picture here. He's saying, here's a guy, baptizes an infant, grew up in a church, probably married another, married somebody, and she no doubt is still an unbeliever too. They're both unbelievers, they're both baptized, they're both members of the church, and they have children now, and they want their children to be baptized, but we're not going to let them baptize them because we've got to discipline them for their unbelief. You get what I'm saying? That's what he talks about. That's, that's how convoluted 
this can become when you have to force infant baptism into the life of the church. Then now we discipline members who are actually members, part, part of the new covenant, according to them. We discipline them by not letting them baptize their kids. <laughs> well, that's what A.A. Hodge says in page 349. Look it up. Larry? Yes. I think we also have to remember that of the three billion Roman Catholics that are in the world today, Roman Catholicism teaches that infant baptism removes the sin of the, of, you know, the original sin. Yeah. And, they don't, and then the covenant part comes later, as I was when I was six or seven, and I go through the confirmation exercise. But they believe. That I was taught that if I were to baptize as a child and I were to die, I would immediately go to hell because I had original sin still in my heart. Yeah. And this is the basis of Catholic baptism. Yeah. So I think we might want to make sure that we don't mix up their teachings of original sin as a reason for baptism as well as covenantial. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. And I'm not really so much dealing with the Roman Catholic view uh, as I am with the those who are closer to us, you know, the like a a pretty you know good solid Presbyterian Pentecostal, but that is very true. Yeah, and actually some, yeah. So we got we got to be careful that we don't start thinking that baptism um, washes away original sin. But in this baptism debate, and I'll, just give me two more minutes and we'll be done. In this baptism debate, I don't want us to lose sight of the glory of the new covenant. That there is glory in what we have just gone through in the new covenant. Jesus, the God man, is a mediator of the new covenant. It was founded on his blood that was shed for us. He guarantees the betterness of the new covenant. For in it, Jesus atones for the members of the new covenant. He intercedes for them. He regenerates them. He regenerates his elect. And finally and permanently he, and eternally, he will, he secures their redemption. All the members of the new covenant are going to be redeemed. We sing five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. When Jesus shed his blood, those those wounds plead for us. He intercedes for us. And they pour effectual prayers. We sing, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. He's not going to lose any of them. There aren't any unregenerate in the new covenant. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, and false sons in her pale. Yeah, there are some false professors within the pale of the church. That's true. There, though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale, against or foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Jesus is building his church, and he's not including unregenerate in it, brothers and sisters. And we will pray, we will work diligently to see our children come to know the Lord, but we do not baptize them and pretend that they are in the church and that they and, and that we can have unregenerate people in the church because Jesus is after a pure church. Okay. That's that. That's that's it for now. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for our mediator, Jesus Christ. And we are so, so very thankful that those for whom he mediates, he will lose none. We pray that we may worship him in spirit and truth now in Jesus' name. Amen.